It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even in terms of propaganda, it has been much more successful than, than the, the one that you saw during Soviet times. Hello and welcome to Free Exchange. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. This week, for the final instalment of our Illiberalism in Europe series, we're going to the furthest boundary of the continent, beyond the Black Sea, to Georgia, Armenia and Azerbaijan. Our guest is Jamila Mamadova, a native of Baku and now a researcher at the foreign policy think tank, the Henry Jackson Society. I began by asking her how the three Caucasian states have managed their delicate position between Russia, Turkey and an increasingly unstable Iran. It's a very interesting question. Um, it's a very interesting neighborhood as well. It's very dynamic at the moment. Well, you can see what's going on in, in Ukraine, for example. We had similar issues happening uh, in Georgia a while ago when, when Georgia was obviously at war with Russia. So many things are happening there. Um, it's very difficult for a country of a size of Azerbaijan or, or Georgia or Armenia, indeed, to um, somehow, if not try and defend itself from uh, Russia's or Iranian or any other big powers' politics in the region, but at least to successfully balance uh, politics uh, internally as well as try and balance its foreign policy. Because as you correctly mentioned, there are different powers around uh, that uh, region and in the region which are interested to get more involved. I mean, by that I obviously mean energy politics. We know that uh, Western, uh, Western countries like UK, for example, um, have um, much invested, for example, in the economy of Azerbaijan. We're talking about energy investments. Azerbaijan itself is one of the biggest investors in Georgia, by the way, uh, again, in the energy sector. But we have Russia also investing a lot in Georgia in, in energy uh, area. So Armenia is pff, uh, almost 99% dependent on Russia in almost every uh, strategically important sector of its economy. So as you can see, to uh, counterbalance any internal interference in, in regional affairs becomes really difficult when you have a situation like, like this, where, where country, countries are so much economically interdependent, not only on each other, but also on, on external players. But who do you think um, matters more? If you're an Azeri yeah. government minister, are you more concerned about what's happening in Washington in Moscow, mm. or in Tehran even? 
Honestly, I think you should worry about everyone, everyone who you just mentioned. Uh, again, in order to successfully balance your foreign policy, you have to be very well aware of, of what's going on in, uh, in in Iranian political circles, what, what the Kremlin thinks about your next move, uh, let's say uh, even about, again, your next big energy project with, with the West. You would try to take uh, their considerations into into account. Um, but obviously you would try and make sure that your uh, politics remains independent, that you remain a sovereign country. Um, but I have to say that in the last um, maybe seven years uh, for, uh, again, smaller countries like Azerbaijan, Georgia, Armenia, we can talk about Belarus as well, uh, it, it became much more difficult to successfully balance between West and East because Russia has uh, increasingly uh, Russia became a much more important player in the region. It become it became much stronger than it used to be. It's it's not the Russia that we used to see in the nineties. You know, with uh, corrupt army not being able to interfere successfully anywhere. We we have seen on the uh, example of Ukraine how they successfully managed to annex. Uh, Crimea and also what they're doing now in Donbass. Uh, frankly, uh, you know, it, it's, it's worth watching and I think they have been extremely successful. I mean, how much do, I mean, as a, a people in, in uh, these countries, I'm thinking particularly mm-hmm. Georgia, are they, are they still scared of the prospect of Russian um, military they, intervention at some point? I would say they don't want to provoke anything like that anymore just because... Um, Georgians have already suffered quite a lot by losing their territories to those uh, separatist forces in South Ossetia and Abkhazia. Uh, so uh, Azerbaijan doesn't want to lose more of its territories either, although it's not a direct conflict with Russia, but everyone is aware that uh, Russia has been supporting Armenia uh, quite um, closely in, in from, from the early 90s and even before the history of the relationship dates back to the Tsarist times. So nobody wants to lose more of its territory and risk any economic disturbances, as you, as you can imagine. Because there's been this, I mean, perhaps a lot of our listeners wouldn't know, there's been this kind of stale conflict in mm-hmm. a place called Nagorno-Karabakh. Correct. Is, I mean, how would you characterize that? It's... Well, to be honest, uh, it wasn't much said about it in the media, indeed, but it's a conflict which is still ongoing. I wouldn't say it's a frozen conflict because people uh, continue dying on both sides. Um, uh, and, you know, a few years ago in 2016, if I'm not mistaken, there was a major war incident there in Karabakh and uh, both Azeris and Armenians died. Um, so... Um, it is still a major issue for the countries in question, and uh, obviously uh, the conflict be- makes it much more difficult for both Armenia and Azerbaijan to overcome their, if you will, like so- Soviet legacy and to incorporate better into uh, Western kind of structures. Um, you know, I mean, European Union, uh, I mean, NATO here. Obviously, we didn't have that issue. I would think we would be much more successful in, in, in building closer relationship, in ter- uh, including in, ter- in trade with uh, European Union or, you know, the United States. How would you describe the, the post-Soviet kind of political and economic settlement? Because... I know that in Georgia, for example, they've actually had a quite radical kind of free market. Um, ben Kidse 
set of reform. That's very true, but on the other hand, we know how very much dependent they are on Russia. Again, in terms of energy policies, they have to counterbalance. For example, they made a very pragmatic choice to start and purchase more energy from Azerbaijan to somehow counterbalance Russian monopoly on their energy market. Again, this is the Georgians. This is the Georgians. Yeah. I mean, um, obviously... Everybody else is in a pretty much similar situation. We also know what happened in Ukraine when a war started there back in 2014. Russia, because it's it's so influential in the Commonwealth of Independent States organization, it it found successfully found ways of pressurizing countries like Kazakhstan, for example, to uh, block uh, trade with Ukraine or to block Ukraine from continuing trading, exporting, importing from from other states, which are parties to the organization. And Ukraine found it uh, increasingly difficult to deal with that. So I think that uh, the Caucasian countries are in a similar position, and they know that if something goes wrong in their relationship with Russia, then they should expect something like visa restrictions, uh, imports, uh, ban on imports, uh, exports, and etc., and, I mean, is the response to that to turn towards, you mentioned the EU and NATO, is there mm-hmm. much, you know, public opinion in the three Caucasian states in favour of joining, say, NATO or in, in favour of joining the EU? I think the society is pretty much divided. Uh, if we're talking about Georgia, I think because of the war um, and because of the consequences of the war and because the West didn't successfully interfere in the political process um, on Georgia's behalf and it couldn't support it as much as it probably could, the the public opinion is a bit divided on that matter. Again, uh, public wouldn't want any, any war there and there are no guarantees are coming from the West to assure the public that they will stand by by these three um, considerably like small nations. We sometimes read that you know from Western analysts yeah. that, that Russia is kind of massing on the borders as if mm. it's the Soviet Union or something, and they're about to launch a land invasion of, of Poland or something. I mean, how real? Uh, what do you think their actual ambitions mm-hmm. are? Are they just there trying to slightly provoking? Uh, the West. Like also coming back to the previous point, if I made, I think Russians have been extremely successful in manipulating public opinion in yeah. all three states. Again, this is this is a propaganda which is pretty much against the West, and every failure on behalf of the West in foreign policy almost immediately turns uh, uh, into a success on on Russian side, and Russians presented as. Uh, Western failure, that the West is not good enough, it does not support um, uh, the, the Caucasus or any other country in, in trouble. We are the ones who are prepared to give you guarantees. So, you know, if you're in this kind of situation where somebody is actually offering you some help, you are you are confused. You you don't know who to who to trust and probably if, if, if you have a guarantee that at least Russians would not attack you again, you would probably stick with what Russians are offering. Do you think that the Putin regime actually Mm -hmm. has big territorial ambitions or is it Mm -hmm. just a matter of 
self-preservation? Well, nowadays, it's not as much about territory, if you will. I think it's about soft power and trying to expand your influence again for economic interdependence, through um, education. Again, Russians are very uh, pro-Russian language almost everywhere where you can find Russian minorities, not only in Caucasus, but actually across Europe as well. And I think that trend is going to expand further. Uh, Whether Russians would turn that into any territorial conquest at a later stage, if you will, that would really depend, in my opinion, on on President Putin's popularity. Uh, We sometimes hear about Russia uh, trying now to maybe exert more pressure on Belarus, maybe even annex part of its territory. Uh, I'm not too sure whether this is indeed what's going to happen, but I'm pretty sure in in the Kremlin they, they probably consider any option similar to the one that happened in Ukraine, just to boost uh, President Putin's popularity. As you know, in 2024, uh, legally, he's not allowed to, uh, again, be re-elected again. It's just not possible. So he has to come up with uh, some kind of solution, again, if he wants to stay in power. And um, I personally think that he's probably himself is not sure at this particular point what's going to happen. I think his key at this point is trying to consider uh, all his options and um, we'll just see from, we'll, we'll take it from, from there. I mean, there is a view that he's sort of never going to leave because he's sort of trapped himself in power, if you like, mm. because as soon as he leaves, mm-hmm. the scale of the theft mm-hmm. and corruption that he's overseen will be... That's very true. That's very true. But I also have to say that I think even if if Putin goes, the system that he built, he successfully managed to rebuild the system. And many experts uh, from within Russia say that it's actually much more, it's it's much more stable. It's much more well managed than even in terms of propaganda. It has been much more successful than than the, the one that you saw during Soviet times. So I think that uh, he indeed managed... And by the way, if you ask Russians, uh, many Russians would, I'm sure, tell you that indeed Putin almost saved us. Mm. He created a strong state, a state that is capable of, uh, you know, uh, surviving any turbulences in in the world, um, stemming from whatever. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. 
Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yeah, I mean, and it's fair to say that while a lot of us in the West think that Putin is very illiberal and uh, repressive and so on, uh, Russians don't necessarily see that as being a particularly bad thing. They might associate liberalism with the kind of mm. poverty and chaos of the 90s after the breakup of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that the younger generation, like we, we don't remember what happened in the 90s, you know, after yeah. the collapse of the Soviet Union. But I think that some of uh, Russian, uh, some parts of Russian society are still quite conservative. And you have to keep that in mind. And Putin is very, has been very um, efficient in talking to that part of society, you know, um, trying to convince them that he shares the same kind of values, again, values of Christianity, of traditional values, family values, and etc. And that's what people want. That's what they want to yeah. hear. That's what makes them believe that he is somebody who's going to protect them uh, and protect their families, protect their values. It, 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 it matters. You, you, you would be surprised, but it, it, it still matters. Yeah, I know, I'm always struck by when sort of armchair commentators say that Putin's a populist. I think that's oversimplifying things. It strikes me that he's, he's someone who uses different isms uh, yes. depending on who he's talking to. That's very true. That's very true. He's very efficient in talking to Muslims. He's really good in talking to Orthodox Christians. You know, even when, when you ask him about gays, I think uh, recently he was saying, commenting something on the LGBT issue, on all, by the way, on liberalism. He said, well, I never said that liberal democracy was a bad thing, which was a very interesting thing to hear. I mean, Honestly, he, he knows how to talk to various groups or segments of society. You're absolutely right there. And I think that's what keeps Russia still, you know, united. I mean, and we've talked a bit about some of it. We've talked about the countries who are in Russia's kind of southern orbit, um, the Caucasian mm-hmm. countries, obviously yeah. a very kind of tumultuous region. I mean, how, how do you view the status of the Baltic countries, who are also part of the Soviet Union, albeit against their will, <laughs> I mean, should mm-hmm. they be as worried as some analysts think? Mm-hmm. I think Putin is more interested now, and we, and we see what's going on now in Belarus. Uh, we definitely received some warnings from there, uh, again, from the expert community, as well as actually President Lukashenko himself. Um, uh, pff, obviously, there were conflicts between the two, like in trade area, and we saw that before when Russians tried to hold energy supplies to Belarus. Uh, same happened with, with I think, with uh, with other things. They're like milk and etc. Um, uh, those uh, sanctions, if you will, can be really painful for a country. And I think the reason why he's doing that is because, again, he tries to assert his power. Um, he tries to... Uh, he also tries to see what Belarusians, what the public in Belarus thinks about, let's say, his next move, it, if it will be annexing some of the territories. They actually want to know in Russia what people of Belarus think. Do you think and that's whether a realistic possibility? Um, it's not something we ever hear about. We hear a lot mm-hmm. about Ukraine and a little bit about Ossetia and places, but... Belarus mm-hmm. is not really on anyone's radar. Uh, it's not, but as some experts suggested, and I think it's quite an interesting uh, suggestion, that at some point, because Putin cannot uh, run uh, for president election next next time in 2024, 
he's actually looking at, pos uh, at different, different possibilities where he can somehow, if not extend his presidential term, but somehow make it legal. And if a new state is created out of uh, the union between Russia and Belarus, which is a new legal entity that could actually allow Putin to stay in power, maybe given Lukashenko a post of prime minister and then successfully running the country. But that's just one of the rumors, uh, which I personally find quite interesting. <laughs> yeah, do you, I mean, do you think Lukashenko would be willing to give up power? Uh, I don't think he has much choice. Again, what, uh, whatever we hear in the media, whatever is coming from him, from his office and etc., criticizing Russia. In the end of the day, he's really well aware of what happened in Ukraine. He knows he's very well aware of uh, trade policies um, of Russia and all those war, uh, trade wars that has been going on between his country and Russia, but also with, with as mentioned, Ukraine. I don't think he, he wants to um, hurt his position, um, uh, you know, significantly. I think he would want to stay in power and uh, maybe uh, even as a prime minister, but he would want to stay in power. He wouldn't want to go. Um, but we'll see. I mean, it's, it's really interesting what's going on now across the former Soviet Union, some Central Asian states where we actually saw some quite smooth transition of power. And I'm talking about Uzbekistan now, for example, or Kazakhstan, for example. But again, every country is specific, uh, so we need to, you know, approach them on individual basis and really looking into what's going on on the ground, trying to understand their cultures. You mentioned Ukraine there. I think that's probably the big, the big country we haven't mm -hmm. really touched on yet. I mean, how yep. do you see the conflict there playing out? I mean, it strikes me that Korea, um, Crimea, <laughs> not Korea, um, <laughs> it's very unlikely that Russia will relinquish Crimea now, but that there might be some kind of settlement in Lugansk and Donbass mm -hmm. area. I think there might be some settlement in uh, Donbass region. Mm, I, I completely agree with you. And it's because um, the new president, Zelensky, he was elected on a platform uh, to specifically end this war. I mean, Obviously, we all very well understand that it's impossible to, to end this war without Russians' uh, direct you know, will. But uh, what he wants to do, at least, is to try and maintain peace on that territory. Um, he went to Donbass uh, a few uh, days ago, if I'm not mistaken, has talked to soldiers there. Some were uh, actually, some welcomed him not with a very positive uh, remarks there, because not everybody's so keen to reaching uh, peace with Russians. But he's trying. Um, I think he, he uh, has been elected on that particular uh, promise. I don't think uh, it will be an easy path for him, to be honest. But we'll see where, where, where he gets the country um, eventually. If Ukraine manages to reform itself, become a little bit more of a mm -hmm. kind of Western-style, mm. liberal, free market, country mm -hmm. that presumably represents a threat to to russia in the sense that russians can look at mm. what's happening there and go hmm. well uh, that's very true one of the uh, points that russians always raised uh, especially after maidan was that you know we cannot cannot allow for open border with ukraine if ukraine is part of the european union because we are not going to have free market on our territory so how can we allow Ukraine to be part of it and then continue trading with Ukraine as usual? This cannot happen. And the same approach will, would be, I imagine, to any other country which would want to go in the same direction. 
So yes, uh, Russia prefers to support perhaps businessmen in Ukraine who have been operating. I mean, it's it's not a recent development. Oligarchs have existed there since the early 90s. They built up their uh, capital then. So I have and have survived almost uh, every president there. Now, and again, obviously they had to, in order to survive internally, they had to somehow please Russians in a way, you know, just to survive in their internal struggle. So Russia automatically was involved, you know, it was part of that struggle. So to somehow today imagine that, you know, Ukraine would somehow abandon those very wealthy individuals and try and, you know, join the European Union, it just, you know, I don't think, I think the agreement should happen within the Ukraine in the first place and between these people who are in charge of now, I would say they're in charge of large territories, they're almost regions, they're bringing their people to power. So it's, it's, it's an internal issue in the first place. And obviously Russians are just trying to use whatever is happening there internally for their particular interest. Jamila, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Uh, no problem. Thank you so much. we look forward to you again on CapEx as well. Thank you. Cheers. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.